I now invite your attention to the book of Job, chapter 22. The book of Job, chapter 22, that's page 575 in the Pew Bible. Page 575, Job, chapter 22, and I particularly draw your attention to verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. And this is referring to God, acquaintance with God. That's very clear from the words of verse uh, 23. The book of Job possibly is the oldest book in the Bible. And the general consensus seems to be that it was probably written by Moses. We cannot be sure about these things, but we can be sure that this book has a message that is old but ever new. Here we read of a godly man, Job, experiencing the dark valleys of life. He was one of the uh, saints of the Word of God who was perhaps the, the most tested, the most tried, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, an unusual case, you might say, perhaps also unique in some ways. But these things are written for our encouragement because believers experience trials and troubles and tribulations, and these uh, words of this book are intended for our encouragement. So here is a man in the dark valley of despondency that experiences times of bright hope, outstanding moments of triumphant confession. You heard about one of them last Sunday evening in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer liveth. He could confidently, confidently assert that he had a Redeemer and he was one who lived on his behalf. Now, looking at verse 21, let us remind ourselves every verse, every text has a context, and it would not be appropriate to go straight into the text without explaining its setting. Remember, Job then was a godly man. He feared the Lord, he loved the Lord, he reverenced the name of the Lord, he turned from evil, he walked humbly before his God, and then trial after trial fell upon him. He lost his family, he lost all his possessions, he lost his health, even his wife foolishly suggested that he ought to curse God and die. Here is this man who's lost everything that he possessed. And his three friends who heard about this terrible news came to commiserate with him. They were so shocked they were moved to tears and grief and they sat down together and none of them said a word to each other for seven days and seven nights and Job was the first to break the silence. And he was overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. But to add insult to injury, his so-called three friends completely misunderstood the reason why Job was suffering. They could only assume that he must have done something really bad. And they had this kind of theory that bad things happen to bad people and good things always happen to good people. And here was bad things happening to Job, and uh, they could only assume he must be guilty of some particular secret sin, and he wasn't prepared to confess it. That was their theory. Job knew they were wrong. He didn't know why he was suffering. He knew it wasn't for any particular sin that he was suffering. He couldn't explain why he was suffering. And he knew what they were saying was completely false. They even suggested he was a hypocrite. And they invented some sins for him. Notice in chapter 22, 
Verse 6, For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped them naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. Verse 9, Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Job wasn't guilty of these things, they were just taunting him really. No wonder he cried out in the midst of his troubles what miserable comforters they were. They were no help to him whatsoever. So here was this dialogue going on then between Job and these three friends in turn. In the end, God brought him out of these things. God turned around the captivity of Job and blessed him abundantly. Now behind all this, a great spiritual battle was going on. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 reveal this to us. Here was Satan who was persuaded Job uh, was only following the law for what he could get out of it. He had been blessed as to the things of this life, and he was sure that if all these things were stripped away, Job would turn round to God and curse him to his face. Job never did. Job stood firm in these things. Yes, he was fretful at times and uh, distressed to the utmost degree, but he never cursed God, did he? And so Satan was defeated and God brought good out of evil. What comfort the book of Job has been uh, down through the years and although Job couldn't understand why he was suffering like this, God has worked it together for his good and for many other people's good as well. So the thesis really of these three friends was to Job, if you now acquaint yourself with him, be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. It'll all come right again, Job. Just acknowledge you've been wrong. But of course, what they were saying was right, but it's wrong in reference to Job. They got it wrong concerning God's servant Job. They were words of wisdom, but wrongly applied. And we need to learn a lesson here because we need to be very careful when Christians going through trouble, lest we suggest that perhaps they have done something and brought their trouble on their own head. We do not know that necessarily. If they have, God in his own way will make it known to them why they're going through these difficulties. We need to be there to support them, to help them, to pray for them, to lend a listening ear if need be. So having put the text in context, we notice then something of the wisdom then of these words if they're rightly applied. So I want to consider these words then in a gospel sense. We notice three things then. First of all, peace with God. Secondly, acquaintance with God, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. And then lastly, the urgency of the call, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. So firstly, peace with God. It's a solemn fact, the word of God is so clear, there's no peace for the wicked. Isaiah mentioned that a number of times in his prophecy. Those who are then wicked, according to the word of God, are those who are happy to go on in their sins, indifferent to the seriousness of sin, no felt need to repent or to confess or acknowledge their sin. The wicked are described in chapter 21, verse 14, in these terms. They are those who say in their hearts, if not with their lips, depart from us, that's to God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. I'm not really interested. I don't want to know about these things. I'm happy as I am. That's the language of the wicked. And the Bible says there's no peace, no spiritual peace for the wicked. John Kent in one of his hymns describes it in these terms, at peace with hell 
with God at war. In sin's dark maze they wander far. Judgments nor mercies ne'er can sway their roving feet to wisdom's way. What true words they are. Some of us can look back and remember a time when that was where we were. We didn't realise at the time, but God had to shake us, to awaken us, to make us to know our spiritual danger. The second consideration is this, that we cannot achieve peace with God on our own terms or by our own means. That's the seriousness of the situation. We're not at peace with God and we can't effect it ourselves. We are helpless. We are ruined by our sins. We need a mediator to stand between a holy God and unholy sinners like ourselves. Have you noticed a number of times throughout the Bible we have the expression, the God of Jacob? It almost seems astonishing that God should reveal himself in this way as the God of Jacob. Almost in one breath he speaks himself as the God of Jacob. Jacob was a sinner. He was a deceiver. He was an unpleasant character. But God changed him. Why was that? How could God be the God of Jacob? There was a mediator between and Jacob came to see this to some degree when he was laying there at night at Bethel. God revealed to him in a vision of the night, he saw what? A ladder reaching up from where Jacob was to heaven. God was in heaven. And the ladder reached between a holy God and unholy Jacob. If you turn to John chapter 1 at your leisure, you will see at the end of that chapter, Christ speaks concerning that occasion. He doesn't speak of the ladder, he speaks of himself. The latter represents Christ as the mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We need a mediator. Job was wrestling with this very matter. In chapter 9 you'll find him saying this, Oh, that there were a daysman betwixt us that could put his hand upon us both. A daysman is an umpire or a mediator. You think of an umpire and a tennis court, both sides of the court they have a responsibility for. They have their hand upon both, as it were, in that sense. Our Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. Only God and man can bring us together. He who is uh, the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, who has taken our nature into permanent union with his divine nature, he is the mediator that we need. He puts his hand upon both, as it were, upon God and man, to bring God and man together. This is the only way whereby we can find peace with God, through the man Christ Jesus. There's a lovely expression in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Just seven words, all words of one syllable. Peace through the blood of his cross. And there you have the gospel in a nutshell. Peace through the blood of his cross. There is hope. There is salvation. There is satisfaction made for the law that we've broken. There is the means whereby our sins can be forgiven. And remember the angels announced this great truth in the fields of Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 verse 14 reminds us of this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Remember Zacharias' song. Remember Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was struck dumb because of unbelief, but when he was delivered, he burst out into a song, and he could see that the birth of John the Baptist was of special significance because he was going to be the forerunner of Christ the Messiah. And so he says, doesn't he, in Luke chapter 1, he shall guide our feet into the way of peace. That was the ministry of John the Baptist, to guide people's feet 
into the way of peace. He was to make straight paths to the Lord. So when Christ appeared, what did John the Baptist do? The most natural thing of all. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he wasn't disappointed that people were now following Christ instead of following him. He knew that was his task. That was his ministry, to point sinners to a saviour. Peace then is provided in Christ and in Christ alone. Peace is in him objectively. Paul says he is our peace. But there's also peace subjectively in the conscience. Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace is something not just to be known about, but to be experienced. So, peace with God. Secondly, acquaintance with God. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. This is a call to faith, isn't it? A very simple challenge, but a call to faith. You see, it's not just about believing there's a God. The devil does that, and he does more than that. He trembles. People sometimes say, well, I believe in God, and that's where it begins, and that's where it ends. But this is a call to saving faith. It's not just about accepting then certain truths. Well, I've grown up with these things. I trust all is well. That's not enough. There must be, of necessity, a personal acquaintance with Christ. This chapel, in its long history, going back nearly 200 years, can testify that this church and congregation throughout its history has stood for the need for personal knowledge of salvation, not just in the outward form of things, not just, uh, just the outward expression of the gospel, but a personal inward experience of the truth, coming to Christ for salvation, obtaining salvation, and a personal knowledge of these things, a gracious experience of the truth, nothing less will do. But the Lord imparting life to our dead soul and giving us faith in believing. True religion's more than notion. Something must be known and felt. Now how can we illustrate this? Acquaintance by faith with God. Well, think about our scripture reading earlier. Think of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 long years. How she suffered at the hands of physicians. and She was impoverished because she'd spent all her living and she was no better for it. But then the turning point comes when she heard of Jesus, it says. And uh, now faith sprang up in her heart when she heard of Jesus. Now, if faith is real, it's an active grace. She didn't say, having heard about Jesus, well, if he can cure me, then I'll sit at home and wait till he comes. No, faith moved her to go out. Faith moved her to go after the Saviour. She must, in all her weakness, in all her need, she was ceremonially unclean, but she must, of necessity, go. She pushed through the crowd, and eventually she touched the hem of Christ's garment. And she felt in herself that she had made whole, and Christ knew that virtue had gone out of him. And he turned around saying, Somebody has touched me. It seemed such a strange question to the disciples, because everybody seemed to be touching him, because the crowd thronged around him. But he knew someone had touched him by faith. And he wouldn't let her go before she acknowledged what had happened. And he acknowledged her as a daughter, saying, Daughter, go in peace. Thy faith has saved thee, the margin says, or thy faith hath made thee whole. She experienced peace 
through the power of the virtue of Christ that she had received. She was acknowledged as being one of the Lord's living family. She was a daughter of the Lord God Almighty. She had now become come to an experience of acquaintance with the Lord. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. She proved the truth of this verse. So here then is a call to peace, peace with God. Furthermore, it's a call to reconciliation. Can two walk together except they be agreed, the prophet tells us? And we are at odds with God, aren't we? We're, we are distant from God. We're not reconciled to him in our natural condition. Our hearts are hard and unfeeling and indifferent. We love sin. We love the ways of the world. We feel a great attraction to these things by nature. But God is holy and righteous and just and pure, all the opposite things to what we are by nature. So there's no reconciliation as we stand in our native condition. And the sad truth is that even though we may hear the message of the gospel plain and clear time and time again, there can be such as the fullness of the heart, there can be a resistance to it. I don't need this. Or I don't need it now, later perhaps, but not now. I've got too much living to do to think about these things just now. That can be the response of the unbelieving heart. Is that how you respond to the gospel? You say, I believe it's true. I believe it's been a blessing to others, but I'm not particularly interested at the moment. I've got so many ambitions, so many things I want to get on with first. Maybe these things can come later. But that's the, the, that's the counsel of folly, isn't it? That's not with the wisdom that comes from above. And the word translated here, as Hebrew scholars tell us, the word acquaint can also mean acquiesce. So it's about submission. It's about acknowledging the truth for what it really is. Now how can we illustrate uh, acquaintance with God and peace that comes through these things in another way? Well, think of the other scripture reading regarding this maniac of Gadara. What a terrible state he was in. He'd lost his dignity, he wore no clothes. No man could tame him, some tried to chain him down, but that was of no avail. He was in a terrible state, self-harming, cutting himself, crying out. As it actually says in the original, he shrieked out. It was a blood-curdling sound, no doubt. He was in a wretched condition. No man could do anything for him. Only one person could deliver him. The Son of God himself had come for that express purpose he experienced the storm on the sea to get through to this man. And with just a word of command, he delivered this man from this terrible captivity and bondage of evil spirits that dwelt in him. So when people came to see what had happened, what did they find? A picture of tranquility and peace. They found him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And that's exactly what happens. It's a beautiful illustration of gospel peace. As we sit at the feet of Jesus, we're now forgiven sinners. We've been delivered from all that evil and all that guilt and shame. We found peace through Christ. We're now clothed with the robe of righteousness. And we're now in our right mind. Perhaps we used to think we were in our right mind before in an unconverted state, but now we see it altogether different. Peace with God. He was now acquainted with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and was therefore at peace. So this speaks to us then of a relationship. True Christianity is not just about knowledge, it's not just about 
saying the right things and doing the right things. It's about relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Christ then becomes our friend, our best friend. He becomes our counsellor, a wise counsellor. He becomes our guide, the best guide of all. He becomes our saviour, the only saviour in whom we are washed and forgiven and accounted righteous. Therefore, being justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you have this peace? Are you in possession of this gospel peace? Do you know Christ? Have you experienced something of this call to faith and you have, by grace, responded to that call? You've run to Christ for relief and therefore you're now reconciled to God through Christ Jesus and what he has accomplished. You now then have a new relationship, a living relationship with the living God of heaven. So then we've noticed peace with God. And secondly, acquaintance with God. But thirdly and lastly, we notice the urgency of the call. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Why the urgency, you may say? Well, there's a number of reasons I want to set before you as to why this should be a matter of great urgency to you. I can tell you this is a matter of urgency to Christians who are concerned about you, who pray for you. We feel these things very deeply, feel a great burden upon our hearts for you. Why should you not then feel an urgency for your own soul? Why should you not pray for your own soul? Because that should be the matter of greatest concern to you. So why then the urgency? Well, first of all, time is short. Time, like an ever-flowing stream, bears all its sons away, says Isaac Watts. It's true. How often we say, where's the time gone? We see children growing up before you know where they are. They're adults almost. And one year soon slips into another. It's true, isn't it? Life soon slips by. Time is short. I remember reading of a godly grandfather and his grandson was telling him about all his ambitions and his, what he's going to do regarding education. His grandfather then said, what then? Well, he said, I shall probably start my own business and make a lot of money. What then? said the grandfather. Well, I want to get married and have a family. What then? Well, I shall uh, do prosperously, I'm sure, and no doubt I'll retire with plenty of leisure and uh, plenty of things to do. What then? said the grandfather. And the, this young man hadn't really thought that far ahead. Well, I, I suppose I will get old. What then? said the grandfather. Well, I suppose I will die. What then? And that's the question, what then? All of us have got to die, but what then? When we ushered out of time into a never-ending eternity. So time is short. Can you see the urgency of this matter? Furthermore, this urgency is pressed upon us because eternity is so long. Words fail to describe eternity. Because we have finite minds, because we're so conditioned by time, how can we really begin to comprehend what eternity is? It's forever and forever and forevermore. A fixed eternal state are by the unending happiness or unending misery. Stop, poor sinner. 
stop and think before you further go. Can you sport upon the brink of everlasting woe? What wise words John Newsom wrote, and you do well to consider them well in your heart. Eternity is so long. Furthermore, the urgency is because life is uncertain. Quite recently, my wife and I have heard of a number of young people who have died. You may have heard on the news only in the last week of four teenagers. And there was a car accident, the car went off the road in North Wales, and it was found upside down in a river. All four were dead. Just 15, 16 or 17 years of age. Can you see the uncertainty of life? A few weeks ago, I was asked to take the funeral for a 19-year-old boy who had died suddenly without any known reason, and they still don't know. In spite of the autopsy, in spite of biopsies and further tests, they still don't know why he died so suddenly, so unexpectedly. The good news is that he'd come to know the Lord Jesus Christ within the last 12 months or so. He sought the Lord and he found him, and he testified of what the Lord had done for him. So, yes, there was overwhelming grief and sadness on the one hand, but at the same time it was tempered with hope and with rejoicing that he was now gone to be with the Lord. Time is short. Eternity is so long. Life is so uncertain. I remember reading an epitaph that was on a, a gravestone in Devizes in Wiltshire, and it put it like this. Life is uncertain. Death is sure. Sin is the wound, but Christ is the cure. Have you come to realize the importance of Christ as the cure? But there's one further reason for the urgency of this matter. The second coming of Christ draws near. None of us knows when Christ didn't say when. He wisely didn't put a date on these things. But he did say this, Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. What an awesome day that will be when the skies will part and Christ has been so derided and hated by so many will be seen in all his glory. For many millions they will see him as their judge with a frown upon his brow and they will quiver and quake before him. Their mouths will be stopped and all the world becomes silent before God, the judge of all the earth. For those who love the Lord, those who know him, and have been experienced, the experience of grace, have been washed from their sins. They will meet him with joy, they will admire him, and behold his glory, and be a, a glorious anticipation of what is yet to be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth. The second coming of Christ then draws near. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. And you may remember the prophet Isaiah uses a similar expression in the first chapter. He says, come now, and he's God speaking through the prophet, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The Lord reasons with us, come now, let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Well, there will never be peace in your heart unless you have peace through Christ. If you imagine you have some sort of peace without Christ then it's a false peace and it will fail you when you need it the most. 
The only peace that brings true spiritual safety and security is peace found in Christ, through his peace-speaking blood, through his finished work of atonement. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say in his 55th chapter, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, that he may have mercy upon him, and unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Many years ago there was a young man I baptised here in this chapel. In his testimony he happened to say this regarding that verse, he shall abundantly pardon. It was a particular blessing to him. And he was rather struck by the expression, abundantly pardon. Because strictly speaking, there are no degrees in forgiveness. You're either forgiven of all your sins, or not at all. But it says, he will abundantly pardon. Why is that? Because of the copiousness and the virtue of Christ. It's, you think of the, the blood of Christ. It's enough, it's more than enough, to cleanse you from the guilt of your sin. You think of the robe of Christ's righteousness, it's enough, it's more than enough, to clothe your spiritual nakedness. You think of the power of Christ, it's enough, it's more than enough, to save you from your sins. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Do not let midnight come tonight without getting on your knees and seeking the Lord for his salvation. Seek him this very night, that you might be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ and washed in his precious blood. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Amen.